Good morning, Four Corners Church. What a joy to gather with God's people again on the Lord's Day. It should never pass us by what a privilege it is to be together. Just a little picture of heaven, just a little picture of what we will experience around the throne of the Lamb forever. So if you don't enjoy this, you're not really going to enjoy heaven very much, right? So think about that. Think about where our hearts are. Let me just say as a plea to the kids, you know, if, uh, if church now is boring for you, heaven would also be boring for you. So think about that. Think about the fact that our hearts are turned away from the praise of God. Our hearts are turned away from enjoying and delighting in the worship of God. Now, of course, we take account for the limitations of children, but we do recognize that we are meant to see that as a, a sign, a warning, an indicator that our hearts are not yet ready for heaven. So if you would please open up your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Today we return to Exodus, and I want to thank Trey for such a penetrating sermon from Philippians last Sunday. We had a great time discussing it as a group and just letting it dig its way into our hearts I was away at the Shepherds Conference in California at uh, the church where John MacArthur pastors. Uh, great conference for pastors, four, I think 4,500 pastors from all over the world. It's just such a joy, such a blessing to be in the presence of, uh, of so many of God's people and to hear those songs, many of which we sing, uh, sung with that many masculine voices. Not that the feminine voices aren't great, but just to hear that deep loud, in unison sound of all those men singing praises to the Lord. So it was such a blessing. And I was listening to all of these great sermons, and then I got to come back and listen to another great sermon through our podcast. So, uh, Trey, thank you, brother, for that, for teaching us God's Word and for letting the Spirit, for uh, being used by the Spirit to bring it so deeply into our hearts Our time in Exodus has now brought us to the Ten Commandments. Very well-known passage in the Bible. By the way, we come to a lot of those in the book of Exodus. A lot of passages that uh, if you haven't been raised in church or you're not familiar with Christianity, that you would be at least uh, vaguely aware of, that you uh, would have some knowledge of. And the Ten Commandments is obviously one of those passages. Two weeks ago... We were introduced to the Ten Commandments through the prologue in verses 1 to 2. So you can understand it as the prologue or the preamble and the prologue. But those opening introductory verses for the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 verses 1 to 2. And in those two verses, which are essential to understanding the Ten Commandments, God begins by telling Israel who he is to them and what he has done for them. So it's very important for us to recognize that God doesn't just launch into commands. He doesn't just say, here is what you must do, period. Do it. That's not the way the Ten Commandments unfold. But rather, they are introduced by substantial, it's brief, but it is substantial in its scope, Substantial comments about who God is, not just who he is in his essence, but who he is to them, who he is to Israel, and what he has done in saving them. 
And what this structure does is it shows us that obedience to God's commands is built on redeeming grace. And we have to understand that in the Christian life or it just becomes legalism or self-righteousness. It just becomes the trying to please men. I mean, how many of our good deeds are done before the eyes of men? The Sermon on the Mount is brief, three chapters, but um, think about how much content that Jesus, in that, in that short, the Holy Spirit, as he's given us that chunk of scripture, how much of the Sermon on the Mount deals with doing our things, our religious things, in front of the eyes of people. We're all guilty of that. And this is what it looks like to be religious apart from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 2. This is what it looks like to do without a foundation, without a grace foundation, without a foundation of steadfast love, of redeeming love, of God's grace through Christ, of God's making and fulfilling of his promises, of God's salvation. So it shows us that we must build our obedience on this redeeming grace. We do because of what God has done. Our our first orientation is to look at the Lord. Behold God. Behold what he has done. Behold his salvation. Behold his relationship to us and his revelation of himself to us. And then out of that, we go and we do. And we recognize as Christians, as we ended last week, that uh, we think about God's commands out of an understanding of Christ and the Spirit, out of an understanding that Christ has kept the law in our place. He did what we could not do. He died for our law breaking, and in his law keeping, His righteousness is imputed to our account so that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's perfect law keeping, not our law breaking. Our law breaking has been removed and Christ's law keeping has been credited to our account. That's what it means to be a Christian. But that's not all. The Holy Spirit of Christ comes into us, remakes our hearts, circumcises our hearts, writes the law of God on our hearts so that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who have the Spirit of God live out the life of Christ increasingly more and more in anticipation of the day when we will be perfectly like him, glorified in his presence. And so as we think about our obedience to God's laws, we think about our obedience to God's will, and you could really just substitute God's will for God's law. This is God's revealed will for humanity. We could understand that all of that comes out of an understanding of Christ crucified, imputed righteousness, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you appropriate the Ten Commandments apart from those theological and spiritual realities, you will misunderstand the law and you will live legalistically, self-righteously, pridefully, apart from the gospel of grace. And so that's what we ended with last week. We talked about the relationship between the law and the gospel. We talked about these four words, 
of Christ, spirit, love, and heart. And speaking of love, we can divide the Ten Commandments into two sets. Into two sets. As Jesus shows us in the New Testament, the whole law can be summed up in two commands. Love of God and love of neighbor. So we read this in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, in the mouth of Christ. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It all is boiled down to this. The Ten Commandments boil down to love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. As Jesus will describe that too in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's exactly what we find in the Ten Commandments as we think about this breakdown of love of God and love of neighbor. The first four commandments concern love of God explicitly, and the latter six are focused on love of neighbor. However, right, we like to really cut things up and make them nice and neat and all of that. I was talking with a friend at the Shepherds Conference about the way we take the judicial law, the moral law, and the ceremonial law, and we make them so neat and everything theologically. But when you look at it, the way that these three actually fold together in Scripture as we think about all of those laws, as we thought about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and we considered the fact that we actually celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. How so? Through holiness and church discipline, and as we think about the Lord's Supper. And so we like to make these distinctions, and they are helpful it is helpful to do that, but we understand that ultimately uh, they, they bleed together. So we recognize that obedience to the last six commandments is also love of God, right? It's not as though we're doing the first four commandments and we're loving God. And then we, we leave God and we go over here to neighbor in the last six commandments. And now we're loving neighbor. We love our neighbor Because we love God. That's why. We love our neighbor out of our love for God. We love our neighbor as an overflow of our love for God. We love our neighbor as unto the Lord and not for men. So we see that all the commandments really have to do with love of God. And we see this most clearly with the 10th commandment, not to covet. So in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul calls covetousness idolatry, which essentially folds the commandments together, bringing the 10th back to the first two. They all say, no, coveting is, is different. That has to do with our relations to our neighbor. But when Paul refers to coveting as idolatry, he's bringing the 10th commandment back to the first and second commandment, which have to do with our worship of God, folding them all together. But as we think about love of God, nothing captures this more clearly than the first commandment. And that would make sense, right? If all the commandments are about love of God, ultimately, then it would make sense that the first commandment would set that 
tone just as we think about the humility uh, and the beatitudes, the, the first beatitude, to be poor in spirit. Just think about how everything flows out of that humble posture before God, that, that neediness before God, that dependence on God, that all the rest of the Beatitudes flow out of that one. Well, the same is true here. All of the other nine commandments flow out of this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. The title for the sermon is The First Commandment, Yahweh Alone. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. Now, we're not just going to read verse 3. I just read that. (laughs) Then sit back down. Uh, We're going to read chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And we're going to do that every week so that we constantly keep the whole in view as we look at each commandment. So this is the word of God. Exodus 20. Verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, And keep my commandments. Verse 7. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing. over our time in his word. Ask for his spirit's work in us, each of us, that he would illuminate his word and that he would convict our hearts because uh, unless the spirit does the work, it's not going to happen. And so we pray that uh, the spirit would make his word clear to us as we go through it and that he would take it and penetrate into each of our hearts in the ways that only God knows we need. We don't even know often what we need. So let's pray. Father, We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the Ten Commandments. Lord, we do not look at them as a relic of the past, but as Paul 
makes so clear in Romans, though we are not under the law, and though the law has been written on our hearts, and we live not by a written code, we still see the need that we have for all of these commands and how they show us, Lord, what it is to live in the Spirit, what it means to be like Christ, what it means to obey our God and what it means to follow your will. All these expressions that we use, Lord, and here we are given what your will is so clearly for us in the Ten Commandments. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be recalibrated to you, that you would orient us to worship Lord, especially this morning, we ask that you would help us to see into our own hearts, to see all the false worship and all the ways that we do not see you rightly. Lord, we pray that you would help us to smash idols and help us recommit ourselves to you. Lord, call us back to yourself today, we ask, as we look at this first commandment and as we think of what it means to love you, the Lord our God. We thank you, Father for your love for us, for all the ways that you have shown it. And as we think about the blood of your Son, the supreme way, the all-encompassing way that you have demonstrated your love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we praise you for the blood of our Savior, and we ask that by his Spirit, you would conform us more and more to his image through this passage, through this single verse. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we try to wrap our minds around the essence of the first commandment, we see three pairs of things that God's people are not to do. Let me just say, before I get into this, it is baffling to me how many pages have been written on each of these commandments. I was looking at uh, the Westminster Confession and the description of the first commandment and how each of the commandments tells us what we are to do and what we are not to do. And there are tomes written on the Ten Commandments. In fact, the Ten Commandments historically in Christianity have been the basis for Christian ethics. And so Christian ethics essentially is to explain the Ten Commandments, to give an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So there is much that could be said and much that inevitably won't be said this morning. But what I want to do is try to get to the essence of this first commandment in one sermon. And so... I think we see three pairs of things that God's people are not to do. These are negative commands. You shall not, you shall not. And so three pairs of things that God's people are not to do. And obviously entailed in that is what God's people are to do. So first, substituting and supplementing. Second, forgetting and following. And third, conforming and catering. So no substituting and supplementing. No forgetting and following. No conforming and catering. So that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So first, substituting and supplementing. As the theologian John Frame, in his Doctrine of the Christian Life, in his Ethics, describes it, the first commandment is a command to covenant loyalty. And we have to get that in the context of Israel. What the first command is in ancient Near Eastern society, what the first commandment would have meant to these original listeners is covenant loyalty. Sticking, adhering to the Lord God of Israel. 
and to not part with him, to be loyal to him in keeping their promise to do what the Lord has called them to do. And they have said, all that you command, we will do. We will be your people and you are our God. It's, it's a commandment of adhesion between the Lord and his people. <clears throat> or, as we think about what covenant loyalty is, simply love. Covenant loyalty understood simply as love. By the way, that just flies in the face of the way we understand love, right? We associate love almost entirely in our culture with feelings. How in the world could you love anybody? How do you love anybody when you have the flu? How do you love anybody when you hit rock bottom? How do you love anybody when they mistreat you and slander you, harm you and harm your family? How in the world is that possible if love is just a feeling? It's ridiculous when you hear a husband or wife say, I just don't love my spouse anymore. What does that even mean? Love is not a mood. Love is not a fleeting moment. It is not to be understood in these sentimental, emotional terms. It is adhesion to the good of another. It is loyalty. It is seeking the good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. That's what it is to love, as Paul describes it in Romans 12. And of course, of course 1 Corinthians 13 all those descriptors of love, that is what it means to love. But here, understood in the context of covenant loyalty. And in summarizing the first commandment, John Calvin says that God declared himself the one God apart from whom no other gods are to be imagined or had, tangible or intangible, spiritual beings Trees, rocks, and bugs, or the sun, moon, and other stars, in addition to the sun, whatever it might be, apart from whom no other gods are to be imagined or had. The translation here in verse 3 has been debated quite a bit as to what is going on in the Hebrew, but it seems that the best rendering would be in my presence or in front of me, or before my face. And that is essentially what the ESV is getting at with the word, and many English translations are getting at with this word before. You shall have no other gods before me. But we need to recognize that this is not before in the sense of ahead of, or over me. Not, it's not ahead of me or over me. This is not the language of priority. So this, re, this, this word before is a little confusing as we think about it in the English language. Because you think about, you know, a line, a, a, like, like a group of elementary students uh, going to the bathroom or the lunchroom or whatever, and there's a line, and you think, don't get in front of me. Don't, don't get before me. You think of someone taking the prior Place. That is not what is going on here with this word before. Rather, it is the language of exclusivity. Not the language of priority, but of exclusivity. No other gods in my presence. 
Literally, you can understand it as upon my face, in my face. No other gods in my face. Anywhere around God's watching eye over his people. No other gods, period. Yahweh alone. That is what is in view. And as the title for this point indicates, I think this excludes most fundamentally two things. Substituting and supplementing. So first, substituting. And the first of these, substituting, is really obvious, right? It's obvious. God's people are not to put another God in his place. They are not to replace him with other objects of worship. So we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Know it in your mind to be true and lay it to your heart. Let it be at the very core of your person, this great truth. And let me just say, apart from this truth, all truth just begins to crumble. This is truth. The Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other, period. This means that there is no alternative. Yahweh is not one of many gods that you can choose from. I remember years ago seeing, I never saw the movie for this reason, but it was a preview of one of the X-Men movies. And apparently in that X-Men movie, they went so far as to, uh, they were listing ancient gods, and they went so far as to throw in the name of Yahweh. As this one of the superhero, I don't even remember precisely what it was, but one of these superheroes was a, associated with Yahweh. I've been known by many names or something like that. He said, no, this is not the case. Yahweh is distinct from all false gods because he is the true God. He is not one of many that you can choose from. There is no alternative. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses as I am and Yahweh, this is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. He is the true and living God. This specific God. You know, you think of all these interfaith movements. We're all saying the same thing. No, we're not saying the same thing. We worship the God of Abraham, the God of promise, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not worshiping the same God as the Muslims. And for that matter, we are not worshiping in truth the same God as Jews who do not believe in Jesus. There is one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Contrasting the Lord with idols, Jeremiah writes this in Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. He's the living God and true God, and he is forever. He is the I am. He is eternal. 
And this is the language of conversion that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. When he's referring to the Thessalonians, he says that they, they are well known, their conversion to Christ. And Paul's ministry among them is well known throughout Macedonia and Achaia. And he says there that they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Echoing the language of Jeremiah. They've turned to God, they've turned away from these dead idols these non-true or false gods, these non-living or dead gods to the true and living God. By the way, that's what it means to become a Christian. You know, forget all the the praying the prayer stuff and forget being raised in a Christian home stuff and forget all that. What it means to become a Christian is to turn to God from idols to turn away from idols, to serve the living and true God. And Paul goes on to say, and to wait for his son from heaven. It is to turn away from serving with our members, our tongue, our minds, our eyes, our hands, our feet, just serving the gods of this world to exclusive devotion to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to waiting on, hoping in, taking all refuge in his Christ. That's what it means to get saved. That's what it means to become a Christian. If that hasn't happened, you have not become a Christian, regardless of whatever else you might think. But it's not just substituting that's in view here. It's also supplementing or adding gods to the worship of Yahweh. To supplement to add gods to the worship of Yahweh. God has shown Israel his power. And he has shown them magnificently his glory, his might. He has demonstrated that he needs no supplement. When you think about a supplement, we think, well, I need a little extra something. This thing's not cutting it. My diet's not cutting it. I need to take a supplement. Well, there's never a situation in which Yahweh is not cutting it. He needs no supplement. But the Israelites will be tempted to add to their worship of Yahweh with the gods of the nations. Not just tempted to replace Yahweh, but also tempted to supplement him. To begin to put him alongside of the other gods. The gods of the nations as they will see them as other gods, though not other gods at all. No, says the Lord. All other gods must be removed from his face. Get them out of my face, is what God is saying in the first commandment. Whether angelic beings or demons, aspects of creation, birds and animals and creeping things, Or images made by the hands of men made of silver and wood and gold and so forth, which we'll see next week. All of these things must be removed. He is God alone. And what this shows us is that any addition, any supplementing of God is really just at its core substitution. Anytime we add to God, we are essentially replacing God. God does not share his throne. 
He doesn't scoot over in his large golden seat, as it were, and make room for someone else or something else to sit down next to him. There's no room in that seat for anyone but the Lord. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So at the core, it's not as though you can just have, you know, Yahweh up here, God up here, have Christ up here, and then have something next to him and be just sort of catering to both. Jesus says it doesn't work that way. You will hate one and you will love one. And the truth of your devotion will be manifest. And as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, it will be manifest in your fruit. It will be manifest in your way. Is it the narrow way or is it the broad way, the broad gate that leads to destruction? You cannot serve God and money. It will also show up in the context in our worry. Immediately after saying those words, Jesus teaches on worry. Well, these aren't just isolated little bits of teaching. These things are woven together logically in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus connects idolatry to worry. Maybe you've never made that connection. Idolatry and worry. A fretting heart is a worshiping heart. Not God. So this excludes, as we think about this supplementing and substituting, it excludes polytheism, atheism, which, by the way, is just another form of religion. It's just an, you just replace God with other things that you worship, yourself, science, humanistic potential, rationalism, whatever it is. It excludes polytheism, atheism, false religions, occultic practices, and every form of idolatry. Those of the heart and those involving physical idols. All of this is excluded by the first commandment. In his book on Christian ethics, Wayne Grudem provides a helpful description of what other gods might mean for us. He refers to things that we do not call gods but that we value, love, serve, and trust more than God himself. If we begin to list, this is is quoting Wayne Grudem, if we begin to list all the things that we sometimes value, love, serve, and trust more than God, the list could cover all of life and could become very long indeed. Millions and billions of things that could go in that slot. And then he lists some examples. So I'm going to list these examples. And this is from Wayne Grudem's work on Christian ethics, which came out recently. His systematic theology has been around for a while, but his Christian ethics came out somewhat recently. And I want to list these things. These are just the, the headings he gives there in that book. And just let these kind of fall on you as the Holy Spirit takes his word this morning and works in each of our hearts. Just, just let these items fall on you. These examples of things we value Love, serve, and trust more than God. Money, material things that we covet, food, and physical pleasure. Approval of other people, 
praise that belongs only to God. Semi-religious or spiritual practices. Power. Self. And then other things that we trust more than God. And in this last category, he writes this. I am not saying that these things are wrong in themselves because many of them are actually good things. You've heard the quip, you know, when we take and make good things, God things, that sort of thing, I think is what he's saying there. Because many of them are actually good things. But our trust in them, so listen to this, all the, think about all the good things in our lives, all the things we enjoy, all the things that we colloquially say, I love that. Like, I, I love Indian food. That's one thing I love. Or I love that or love that. I mean, love is a strong word to use in in that situation. But these are things that we really enjoy, things that we really like. So just think about all those things in your life that are part of your enjoyment. And the Lord has given us these things, as Ecclesiastes says, for our enjoyment. God has been so gracious to us in common grace, so many things. We enjoy our families and we enjoy our pleasures and we enjoy our work, all these things. And that's wonderful. But here's where... Here's where the rubber meets the road for us. But our trust in them and our love of them can take the place of God. Therefore, they can become idols in our hearts. So here's the question. As I went through that list, some inherently bad, some good things that become God things. What is it for you? Where is it this very day that you have taken those things and you have trusted in them. You've taken refuge in them. They are your God. Momentarily, situations of life. What is it for you? Ultimately, we recognize That we observe this commandment, this first commandment, as we think about ultimately, what does it mean to walk in God's will with regard to the first commandment? Ultimately, we recognize that we observe this commandment, listen, by honoring, pursuing, and treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the way in which we obey, keep, observe the first commandment. How do we know that? John chapter 5, verse 23 is just the beginning. And there's so many verses. I was going to include a bunch of verses here, but I, I didn't do it. I restrained myself. But there's one that gets to the heart of it, and that's John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son. Listen. Just as they honor the Father. Whoa! In a Jewish context, that's groundbreaking, that, that, that's earth-shaking, and, and that's the reason the religious leaders are ready to kill Jesus when he says that, that all may honor the Son. And we're not talking about honoring the Son as, as sort of a, a king like David and Solomon would have been honored, or as the religious leaders would have been honored. We're talking about honoring just as they honored the Father. That's the honor given to the Son. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Apart from treasuring, pursuing, and honoring Christ, there is no keeping of the first commandment unto God. We come by way of Christ, and he is our great treasure. He is our hope, our only hope in life and death.
So first we see that there is no substituting and supplementing. Secondly, no forgetting and following. One of the things I did in preparation for this sermon is to look at all the instances of the word gods in the Bible, to read through all of those instances of the word gods. And there were well over 200 occurrences of them in the Bible, all over the place. And they concentrate in certain areas, so many in the Pentateuch, so many in Jeremiah, for example. These references to gods. And what it demonstrated was that at the heart of the breaking of the first commandment is forgetting and following. So we have these two words up here, forgetting and following. So first, forgetting. The Lord says this in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 15, but my people, listen to this, but my people have forgotten me. My people have forgotten me. They make offerings to false gods. And then similarly in Psalm 44:20 The psalmist describes the worship of other gods as forgetting the name of our God. This language of forgetting and spreading out our hands to a foreign god. So we get inherent in this idea of false worship of of not worshiping God of the Lord alone but worshiping other gods whether replacing or supplementing we see that at the heart of that language is this idea of forgetting. And the language of forgetting is related to the idea of forsaking or leaving or abandoning. You forget and then you walk away. You leave. 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 9. They abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. They abandoned the Lord their God. We forget God. We walk away from God. When God's people break the first commandment, they are forgetting their God and leaving him behind. And throughout the Old Testament, the emphasis is on God being the one who brought them out of slavery. In so many of those over 200 instances of of gods throughout, especially the Old Testament, there's reference to God being their true God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. He was the one who brought them out of slavery. They have forgotten the God who saved them. They have abandoned or left or walked away from the God who saved them. He is their savior. He is the mighty God whom they should fear. They should not trust in or take refuge in the gods of the peoples. They should trust in and take refuge in the God who saved them. To go after other gods is at the base an act of forgetfulness. Let me say that again. To go after other gods is at the base an act of forgetfulness. Our idolatry, all those idols that maybe came to your mind earlier, as you think about those things that you worship, those things that you put alongside of God, our idolatry comes when we fail to remember, when we forget. Let me say it this way. Neglect God's word and watch the idols fill your heart. You think you could just just let God's word go to the side? That it's merely a matter of of not 
having your Bible reading, that, that that's a, a minor thing, that that's just a part of your religious duties. And, and if you set that aside, you're not keeping your religious duties. And you should do that. It would be good to do that. It would be better to do that. No, it's far more grave than that. It is that when we neglect God's word, we forget God, we abandon God, we walk away from God, and we go after idols. If God's word fills our hearts, idols will be pushed away. If God's word is neglected, idols will flood our souls. How did I get here, you might think? How did I get to this point? This is how we get to this point. This is how we get strung out on sin. This is how we get so far from God's will. This is how we get addicted to pleasure and substances and everything else. Is because we've put God's word up on a shelf and we've lived full of idols. That's how it happens. Forgetting. Immediately on the heels of this forgetting comes the following or the pursuing of other gods. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 6 uses the language of going after other gods. It is an image of hot pursuit, looking for, getting in line behind these other objects of worship. Now we recognize that every human being is a worshiper. Maybe you don't recognize that. But it is true, every human being is a worshiper. There are no non-religious people. As much as these well-known atheists would have people to think that they're sort of living in this rational neutrality, this kind of religious no man's land, this kind of place of rising above, they've risen above all the silliness and the superstition, they've risen above all the crutches and opioids of the masses, They've risen above all of that, and they're just objective observers of reality, helping people to find the rational way forward. No, they're religious people with hearts filled with idols. Everyone worships something or someone. We come into the world as white-hot polytheists. We come into the world as self-worshipping and thing-worshipping, idol-worshipping sinners, devoting ourselves to our false gods. That's how it begins. It doesn't happen that way. It's not a clean slate, and then you just sort of rack up idols as you go. Of course, they do grow and multiply. But we start that way. So when we forget God, we need to recognize that something will fill its place. Because we are not neutral. There's never nothing on the throne. The gods of the old self, the old life will come in to fill the vacuum. We were talking yesterday, uh, some guys brought up in, in our discussion group at our men's event uh, about, you know, they've had contact with people in high school and stuff like that and things come in. It reminds me that, you know, sometimes we will be walking through life and we'll come uh, up uh, up against something that reminds us of our sinful past. Something that reminds us of the way we used to live, the way we were when we were outside of Christ. Those things can come back. Those things can bite. And they come back and they bite and they devour when we forget the Lord. 
They fill its place. But here's something important that we need to notice, and this is key. It's not merely that gods fill our hearts. When you think about something filling something else, you think that there's just been a crack let in, and, and, and it's as though the pressure's on the outside, right? And you just, you, you, you have a crack, or you, you release a plug, and oh no, it's coming in, it's filling. That's a helpful image, but it really doesn't get to the truth of it. It's not merely that gods fill our hearts. No, rather, we go chasing after them. We forget God and then we pursue other gods. It doesn't just happen to us. We do the pursuing. We are not victims of our idolatry. Get that out of your mind. You're not a victim of your idol worship. All these idols, they just attacked me. They just attacked me when I was vulnerable. They pinned me down. They pushed me into a corner. And now I'm giving myself over to other gods. That's not how it works. We forget the Lord and we go after them. We chase them. We pursue them. We are the pursuers. We are the perpetrators of false worship. We are the perpetrators of the breaking of the first commandment. Thirdly, we see conforming and catering. Conforming and catering. So as God's people, as we think about this first commandment this morning, as God's people, we are not to substitute or supplement when it comes to the worship of God. We are not to forget the Lord and his salvation. We are not to neglect his word and thereby forget him. By the way, if you neglect his word, you will forget him. You will forget what he's done. Of course you will. No, not me. Yes, you. You will forget, and I will forget. Don't read the Bible, and you will forget. You'll lose sight of him. We are not to forget the Lord and his salvation. We are not to forget his great name and begin chasing after foreign gods or false objects of worship. But now we come to the inner workings of false worship. To break the first commandment is to conform ourselves to the world. And to cater to our sinful, self-exalting desires. And that's what I'm getting at here with these two words, conforming and catering, as we close this morning. So first, conforming. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. You shall not go after. There's that language again of going after, pursuing. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. That's where I want to focus you here. The gods of the peoples who are around you. Now we know that this sort of language was relevant to Israel. They were about to go into the land of Canaan. They were about to enter into a land filled with atrocious false religion. It would be all around them. And that's where we see the book of Judges. We see the people are supposed to go in and they're supposed to annihilate the people, but they don't. They leave them there. They're surrounded by this false religion. But is this not exactly what we also face in our world today? We, we, we can understand how that Deuteronomy 6 applies to Israel. They're, they're in Canaan. They're in an idolatrous land. But what about us today? Are we not surrounded by idolatry? 
Are we not surrounded by false religion? I can remember reading through Judges in family worship with our kids, and I can remember coming along some long passages and just thinking, oh my goodness, this is, I, I don't even know that they're, they're understanding any of this, and, and just plowing through and reading through it and all the names and everything else, and just reading through. But you know what? It was amazing to me because God put on my heart as we were going through that just so clearly that the big idea of the impact that the world around us has on us and draws us away from the Lord. That came through in Judges. And so it took reading those difficult passages, reading all those place names and all those people, it took reading through that to see that so clearly. And I think that point came through. We are also in the land of Canaan. We are also living as they did in the days of the judges, this world is filled with substituting and supplementing. The world around us is filled with what we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. It is filled to the brim with what Paul describes in verse 21 as a failure to honor God and give him thanks. We've got neighbors and people that we know who are great people, I mean, in terms of, you know, as, it, as far as it goes, they're good people, they're nice people. But they do not honor God and give him thanks. There is no vertical dynamic. It's just dead. No cognizance of the Lord. No desire to see him exalted. And that's one way, again, you can know whether or not you're a Christian. Does the exaltation of God, his renown, his glory, does that even factor into your life? If not, you're not a Christian. The glory of God is the driving force of a Christian. We want to lift him up. The world in its idolatry is filled to the brim with a failure to do that. Not honoring God. Not giving him thanks. Patting our own selves on the back for our accomplishments. And so forth. This is the air we are breathing in all the time. To take in any media, any, to be around people in our world is to breathe this air. To disobey the first commandment is to be conformed to this way of life. And that's what I'm getting at here with conforming. It is to be conformed to that not honoring God, not giving him thanks, exchanging the glory of God for other things to worship. So what is the alternative? The alternative we read in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Of course, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship presenting ourselves always unto the Lord. And then here he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What that tells us is that worshiping God means not being conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to the world. And once again, look where we are. We're back to God's word. We're back to the Bible. We need to be renewed in our minds. And how are we going to be renewed in our minds when our minds are constantly being filled with the values and the worldview of our world? How is it that our mind is going to be renewed? By the scriptures. Period. That's how. By being with God's people who are in 
the Scriptures. We need to be renewed in our minds or we will inevitably be conformed to the world. Here we are given two contrasting illustrations as we finish up this morning. Two contrasting illustrations. On the one hand, we have Solomon. And on the other hand, we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As we think about what it means to either conform to the world or to not conform to the world, there's Solomon, 1 Kings 11:4. 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives... Those in the world, his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. There's one picture. That's what it looks like to disobey the first commandment. That's what it looks like to be conformed to the world. Here's another Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 to 18, with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If this be so, after the king has said, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you don't bow down to my statue. And they said, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they had confidence that God would deliver them. But then listen to what they say. But if not, we don't know for sure that we're going to make it out of there. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Where are the voices of God's people saying, we will not serve your gods? No, no. Those are not our gods. The Lord is our God. Finally, we have catering. We see no conforming. Finally, no catering. Catering, that is, to our own sinful desires. What does James say about sin? Sin, including the breaking of the first commandment. He says this, each person is tempted, James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by the outside world. That's not what he says. By his own desire. Our greatest problem is inside of each of us. Right? Think about that. Your greatest problem is not your unbelieving friend. Your greatest problem is not the media that you take in from outside. Your greatest problem is your own sinful desires. My own sinful desires. That's the issue. In his book, The Biblical Counseling Movement After Adams, Heath Lambert, a book that we're reading by Heath Lambert, a book that we're reading right now as elders about counseling, he describes the, the dynamics of false worship, the dynamics of idolatry in this way. He says, Idols are external elements that the world, the flesh, and the devil use in in." to influence people to feed the lust of their self-exalting hearts. Idols, then, are those outward things that the sinful heart fixates upon to fulfill its desires in its exercise of attempted self-sufficiency. In other words, what he's saying is that our, our, our core problem is not idolatry, actually. Our core problem is not idols, the things presented to us. The core problem is our sinful desires, which he equates to our, our self-exalting heart. 
Let me give it to you this way from a quote in that same book by Ed Welch. He says, the purpose of all idolatry is to manipulate the idol for our own benefit. This means that we don't want to be ruled by idols. Instead, we want to use them. Idolaters want nothing above themselves, including idols. They don't want God or an idol. They want self. Their fabricated gods are intended to be mere puppet kings, means to an end. And what is that end? Worship of self. Satisfaction of self. Exaltation of self. We love self. And that's why at the center of the Christian faith is a cross. Death to self. Come and die to self. That's the call of the Christian. Have you come to Christ truly? Have you died with Christ? Have you died to self? And it is to this topic specifically of idolatry that we will turn next week. But I want to close on this note. Praise God that Christ paid for all of our idol worship. So as we went through all those idols, we should desire with the greatest zeal with the greatest prayer, the most intense application of or wearing of the armor of God to fight those idols, to put those idols to death, to obey God in keeping the first commandment. And yet we recognize that in all of our failures, in all the idols that came into our minds today, that we are a people with great hope because the Lord Jesus Christ died for that idolatry. So we rejoice. We don't leave in despair. We don't leave with this kind of introspective defeat. We leave with exultation in Christ. We leave with great joy in Christ. And that joy and that gratitude and that excitement and that exuberance will translate inevitably, if it's true and if it's from the Spirit, it will translate into a sin-hating fight. That's what it looks like to rejoice in Christ, is to hate sin, to fight sin, and to smash idols wherever they may be found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the cross of Christ, or better, for Christ's cross work. We thank you for his atoning death and his redeeming blood. We thank you, Father, that through him we have forgiveness of all of our sins, that they're no longer nailed to us, they're nailed to the cross. We thank you, Father, that Jesus is for us our righteousness. And Father, we thank you that in this life you are making us more like him every day. Use this sermon to do that in each of us, Father. Use this first commandment and our reflection on it this week to make us more like Christ. To make us more those who from the heart, in truth, say in our hearts, you shall have no other God in my presence. Would we worship you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now, we pray, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we give thanks to you in this way. 
In Jesus' name, amen.